Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Hey, good morning. Oh, are you guys here? Oh, hi. Guess what? I went through 70 verses this morning. First service. You believe that? You're like, are you? Dude, it only took us like three hours. So we're going to do it again. Acts chapter 6 this morning. Acts chapter 6. And we, we really are going to go through a lot, but uh, just an incredible time in the Word this morning. Stand with me once you're there. Acts chapter 6. Beginning in verse 8, we read in Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of those, the Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and that we are humbled before you, Lord, before your word, and we ask you to speak to us, God, that your Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth this morning, that you would prepare our hearts for communion later in the service, Lord, and uh, Father, if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you, that they would bow their knee to you today, that none of us would resist your Holy Spirit. As we dive into your word now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. I've entitled this message, Standing for Jesus. Standing for Jesus, for this is exactly what we find Stephen doing in our text this morning. He's making a stand for Jesus. Now, one of the things that you need to understand about standing for Jesus is it's not all about boldness. I see Christians oftentimes that are standing in boldness for Christ in the flesh. Do you know that that is a direct misrepresentation of who Jesus is when you do that? If you're not standing in the Spirit of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, but you're standing in boldness in the flesh, you will make Jesus look bad. We need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us in order for us to stand for Jesus correctly. Now, there isn't a day and an age, uh, I, I think, in the history of man in which it's more pertinent that we stand for Jesus than right now. And this, our culture in our day, folks, we need to stand for Jesus, but we need to stand for Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because if we're in the Spirit of God, and we're operating in the Spirit of God, then we will do everything that we do in love, number one. And we will represent Jesus correctly. We will say what we're supposed to say, when we're supposed to say it, and we will shut our mouths when we're supposed to. We need the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It was A.W. Tozer, I believe, who said that 95% of what happened in the early church couldn't happen if they weren't empowered by the Holy Spirit, but 95% of what happens today could just go on and nobody would know the difference. What an indictment on God's people that were walking in the flesh trying to fulfill the, the, the plan that God has for our life 
in the flesh. Listen, the indictment on Stephen and the religious leaders in our text this morning is a direct reflection of the Holy Spirit. He says, you guys are stiff-necked. You resist the Holy Spirit. And my prayer for all of us in this room this morning is that we would not be stiff-necked people that would reject the word from the Holy Spirit this morning. I don't know where you are or what's going on in your life, but what I know is the Holy Spirit is here. And I know the Spirit of God leads us into all truth. And if you will hear him this morning, you will be led to the feet of Jesus where you will find forgiveness, where you will find grace, where you will find mercy, and where you will find you know, reconciliation with, with the Father. But if you resist the Holy Spirit, you will probably find yourself trying to work out your salvation in your flesh. God doesn't want that for you this morning. If we want to be used by the Lord, we need to be people who are filled by the Spirit of God. That's what we're going to see in Stephen's life here this morning. The other thing that we're going to see is that Stephen has, listen to this, zero. And when I mean zero, I mean a double zero, goose eggs. He has zero regard for his own life. He's not trying to preserve his life. Because he understands what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 16, 25, for whoever whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He understands that his life is in God's hands. And his life goes on outside of this world. And really the life that he's looking to live is the life beyond this world. The life that he desires is not the life here and now, but the life that is to come. And that's the life we're to be living for. We're to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus while we're here, to to complete all the work that he has for us to do, but we are not to hold on to our lives in this life. Because if you do that, what you will find is that you end up loving the world more than you love God. And I've met people like that in the church. Say, man, I'm just trying to preserve my life. Then you miss the entire point of the gospel. You're not here to preserve your life. You're here to give it away, just like Jesus did. We're here. After we come to Christ, our life is given over to Jesus as a life of sacrifice and service to him. That's what we're called to. And Stephen represents that so well in our text. He understands to live is Christ, but to die is what? Gain. To die is gain. He understands that there's better days coming. And it's not all about this life. Most people who live their life for the Lord, hey, listen, probably aren't going to live very long. Most people that live their lives truly for the Lord probably aren't going to live very long. You're going to find lots of opposition along the way. But it's worth it. And I want to encourage you this morning. It is worth it. The things that you will encounter in this life may be very, very difficult as you stand for Christ but I want you to know that they will, they will be pale in comparison to the things that are waiting for you on the other side. Live for the Lord. Stephen is, all, Stephen is sold out for the Lord, saturated in the Holy Spirit, and we're gonna see how, where that takes him on this path in our scripture this morning. 
I've divided these verses up into five main points with a few subpoints. You can see them on the screen behind me. Uh, you can take a picture of those and, uh, or whatever and write them down if you want. Or you can go to the app, and we're starting to put uh, an outline of the sermon under more in the Church Center app. So if you go to the Church Center app, you go to more, you'll see sermons, and then you'll see my outline for this morning. So you can go there. But th- there's really five main points with uh, basically a historical Five subpoints of the history of Israel as Stephen makes his defense before the religious leaders. So we begin by looking at the character of Stephen. Look again at verse 8 of chapter 6 with me. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen was a man of character. We read this in Acts chapter 6 in the verses just before this. It says that um, when they appointed the seven men, they were to be of good repute, to be full of the spirit and of wisdom. Stephen fit that bill. Everybody around him understood that he was that kind of man. Not only that, but then Luke goes on to record for us specifically about Stephen that he was also a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Twice the spirit of God uh, you know, is, is prevalent in his life. People understand Stephen is a man full of the Holy Spirit. And here, we find him full of grace and power. This is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in the life of a believer, full of grace, giving what you don't deserve. That means you go into the world, and no matter how you're treated, you treat people the way that Jesus wants them to be treated. You treat them like Jesus would treat them. Unconditional love, grace, giving people what they don't deserve empowered by the Holy Spirit to be a witness unto Christ. That's what he promised his disciples in the early church, and he promises you that today, power to be a witness unto Jesus. Notice that Stephen was full of grace and power, so much so that he was doing great signs and wonders among the people. Stephen is the first disciple post-Jesus dying on the cross and rising again from the dead that is performing signs and wonders. Before this, after the resurrection of Jesus, only the apostles were doing signs and wonders. Now, the gifts of the Spirit are being spilled out all over the people, particularly Stephen in this case. Stephen is doing signs and wonders among the people. What is the purpose of signs and wonders? Again, to authenticate the messenger. When you walk around Jerusalem and, you know, Stephen is doing you know, signs such as perhaps he's healing people or whatever it is. It doesn't tell us what he's doing. Maybe he's a word of knowledge, whatever. But when you see that happen, you're like, whoa, this seems serious. This seems like maybe God's hand is on. That's the purpose of it. It's the purpose of it, the Old Testament, that they would recognize the hand of God upon a person by the things that they did. So it would authenticate the messenger Stephen, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is doing what God has called him to do. Here's what I want you to hear this morning, is that Stephen wasn't waiting for more before he stepped into what he was called to do. Some of us are here this morning, we're waiting for God to do more in our life, waiting for more uh, gifts of the, gifting of the Spirit, more empowerment, more this, more that, and the Lord's saying, I'm not giving you more until, you do, until you're faithful with what you've been given. Stephen was faithful with what he'd been given, and he's given more. That's the principle of the New Testament church. You're faithful, God gives you more. Those who are faithful, you know, he adds more to you. You you have more opportunity. You have more, uh, more gifting. You have more this or more that. 
Stephen is being faithful to the gifting that he's been given. His, his character on display here now results in the opposition towards Stephen. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen is witnessing Jerusalem, and he comes across these, these dudes from the synagogue of the freedmen. Who are they? Well, they are either descendants of Jewish slaves or they are Jewish slaves themselves who were captured by Pompey in 63 BC and taken to Rome and were enslaved there. And then they were later released. Either they bought their freedom or they were just let go. They came back to Jerusalem and then uh, whether it's the descendants of them or they themselves, they started a Greek-speaking Jewish community in Jerusalem, a Greek-speaking Jewish synagogue. And that's what it's speaking about. Who, now, Stephen, it's interesting, right? He's a Greek-speaking Jew. That's, he's, he's, he is that. So it's interesting that he's reaching out to those people. Remember, he was set over the Hellenists, right? To take care of the distribution. Here he is. You find him in this place where he's speaking to these Greek-speaking Jews. And not only them, but, but those who are from the Cyrenians and those who are from Alexandria, um, northern Africa, basically, and also, there were some there from Cilicia and Asia. Now, Cilicia should flag you, flag your mind and say, okay, who, who, who was from Cilicia? Who was, who's, what, what apostle was from Cilicia? From Tarsus of Cilicia. The apostle Paul, right? Hey, many scholars believe perhaps this was Paul's circle of people. Perhaps Paul was in this synagogue. Perhaps he was there. We don't know. We don't know if it was in the synagogue that Stephen is speaking to them or if it's, he's in the temple where the, where the church would meet and they would gather together and they would uh, you know, have church in Solomon's portico. We don't know where they are exactly, but what we know is what they're hearing from Stephen, they do not like. They are opposing Stephen. They're, oh, I don't know about that Jesus, Stephen. Uh, I don't know about all that you're saying about, you know, this Jesus coming and dying and rising again from the dead, and now he, he's the only way to the Father and all of that. They didn't like it. But guess what? They couldn't do anything about it. They couldn't refute the wisdom that was coming from Stephen through the Holy Spirit. They were trying to fight against God. Hey, we read about that a couple weeks ago when Gamaliel, the, the, the foremost teacher in Israel, stands up in the council with the Sanhedrin, and he tells them, guys, leave these guys alone. If you do, and it's not of God, it will fail. But if it, but if it is of God, then, and you guys fight against them, then you'll be fighting against who? God. That's what they're doing. And you know what? That's never a, that's never a fight I want to fight. I don't know about you. I don't want to fight with God. Because God has my best interest in mind. How foolish of me to try and fight with God to fight with the Holy Spirit. No, I want you to go here because I have something over here. No, I'm not doing that, Lord. Hey, don't fight the Lord. He's got something great for you. He has your best interest in mind. These guys are fighting against the Lord they, and they can't withstand the things that Stephen is saying. They can't refute what he is saying. So they resort to what anybody inspired by uh, the devil does. They resort to lying 
and conspiring and deceiving. That's what they do. They're going to shut him up one way or another, but they do that. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. This, this scenario is all too familiar, isn't it? The same scenario that Jesus found himself in, the false accusations against an innocent man. Stephen's done nothing wrong, but the problem is they're, they're frustrated with the reality that they cannot refute what he's saying because it's God speaking through him. And so they drum up for themselves false witnesses that are going to stand against Stephen. They're going to lie about what he's saying and stuff like that. They claim that he's speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. These are the same accusations that were brought up against Jesus. Same kinds of accusations. They said Jesus was blasphemous too. Uh, they also said he spoke against the temple, as they are saying Stephen is speaking against the temple. Stephen standing before the council now, the high priest Caiaphas in the room. They look upon him, and they look, and they can see that he's an innocent man. It says that his face shone like the face of an angel. Like, he just had this, this, this I don't, is that pretty, or is, this, is it powerful, or what does the face of an angel look like? I asked my wife this morning. She told me it looks like me when I'm getting up in the morning at bed. But I said, wow, maybe I should stay in bed longer. I'm kidding. But, hey, listen, his face, this is what you need to understand. His face is simply a reflection of his heart. Stephen's face is reflecting the things that are going on in his heart. He spent time with Jesus, and that's why he looks the way he looks. And if you spend time with Jesus, you'll look like this too. Stephen was sold out, man. Remember, you, you look at Moses when he spent time with God up on Mount Sinai, and he came down glowing to the point that it freaked the people out. He had the He's like, dude, put a veil on or something. Like, whoa. You know, but listen, when you're, when you spend time with the Lord, you know, you can see it visually on people. You can see the peace that they have. You can see just, just that, that confidence in Jesus. Stephen's not afraid of being in front of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel. And here he is standing before them, the character of Stephen on display, leading to the opposition of Stephen. Now, we find the defense that Stephen will make before these uh, religious leaders relating to the accusations that they're making. Look at verse 7, chapter 7, verse 1. And the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. Caiaphas, the high priest, gives Stephen an out right here. Hey, Stephen, you want to out here? You want to escape with your life? Hey, just, just tell us it isn't so. Tell us we misunderstood. Tell us something, you know, that will make us calm down a little bit. 
Stephen's not interested in that. Stephen's not interested in protecting his life. Stephen is interested in taking a stand for Jesus before these religious people. Here's what he, he sees an opportunity to stand before the religious leaders of Jerusalem and deliver to them the gospel directly. Now, these guys, he's, he, he's part of the group that was, you know, there when Stephen and, and those guys had come back at, or when, when the, the, the apostle had been brought before the Sanhedrin and beaten. He was there. He was part of that group of believers. When they came back, he knew what to expect, and yet he's not shying away from standing for the Lord here. He's not worried about his life. He's saying, hey, I got a job to do. So what does he do? He pleads with the religious leaders, brothers and fathers, hear me. In other words, my prayer in this conversation with you right now is that you would hear, not just listen, but you would hear the words that I'm going to say to you. And what he's going to give them is a historical account of the disobedience of the nation of Israel. He's going to give them a historical account of how they completely and totally reject the people that God sends to them the first time he sends them. They reject them, just like they did with Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. Why? Because they resisted the Holy Spirit. And Stephen is about to give them a historical um, you know, defense of where he sits relating to the things that they're saying here. He's going to, they're saying he's guilty of blaspheming God and Moses and the law and the temple and what he's going to do is show them that they're guilty of blaspheming God, Moses, the law, and the temple. He's going to use that by uh, bringing people up like Abraham and Joseph and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. Stephen's not speaking of the heritage solely here of the nation of Israel, but more so of the betrayal of the people of Israel to their God and how they relate to God over and over and over again in disobedience, and yet God still takes them back. And yet how they would then reject Jesus himself. They would murder the messengers and then finally the Messiah. This is Stephen's first and only recorded sermon in the, in the Bible. And man, it's a powerful one. It also happens to be the longest sermon in the book of Acts. So Stephen really lays it out here for us. He begins by telling them that the, they, he begins with the, the establishment of Israel through a man named Abraham. Look at verse 2. The glory of God appeared, or the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from the, your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed from him from there into, his, into this land in which you were now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. 
And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. Remember, Abraham was called by God, didn't have any relationship to God, didn't know God at all. He lived in a pagan land where they worship pagan, you know, they worship false gods and all of this kind of stuff. And yet somehow the Lord calls Abraham out of that. And he tells him this, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you, I will make of you a great nation. And he goes on to, make, to, to say some other promises, you know, and such. But God, is, God gives him very specific instructions. I want you to leave your country. Instruction number one. I want you to leave your kindred. Number two. I want you to leave your father's house. Number three. Abraham just does number one. He doesn't do two and three. He's partially obedient to the Lord. What he does is he gets up and goes out of his land with his father and with Lot. And he does not go to the land that God will show him. He stops at Haran. He stops there. He's not fully obedient to the Lord. This is the father of faith in the nation of Israel. And he starts out partially obedient. The grace of God. Thank you, Lord, that God is so gracious to us. And you know the story. After his father dies in Haran, Abraham then hears a second call. And thank God for second calls on our lives when we're in partial obedience to him. That he doesn't just say, man, I, don't, I, can't, I can't. These guys don't do what I say. So he gives us another opportunity doesn't he? He's faithful to speak to us. And so he calls Abraham once again, hey, Abraham, leave your country, leave Haran now, and I want you to leave your kindred, and I want you to leave your father's house and go to a place that I'm going to show you. And what does he do? He leaves Haran with Lot. He's still disobedient to God. God said, leave your family behind. Why? Because they're going to pull you down. I'm not calling them right now. I'm calling you. And, and if you bring them, they're going to pull you down. Sometimes we don't understand that. That God produces separation for the purpose of uh, service to him. And then when, when he's finished with whatever he's trying to do in our lives, then he can focus on something else. But it's not like, you know, uh, he, he's calling the whole family here. He's calling Abraham. And maybe God's calling you, but your family's holding you back from what it is that you're called to. Hey, listen, be careful. Jesus said, man, if, if you love anybody more than me, you're not worthy of me. Do you love the Lord? Then be obedient to him. Do what he tells you to do fully, not partially. Abraham goes and he finally lands in the place that he's supposed to be with Lot producing a lot of problems for him, by the way because he wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. And, and, and the Lord tells him, you're not going to gain any of the inheritance of this land, Abraham, but I'm going to give this over to your descendants. I'm going to give this land to, to the, the nation that will rise up underneath you. But they're going to go in captivity first for 400 years. And that's where they're going to be raised up, and, but I'm, I'll deliver them through a man named Moses, but, but for now, you just go to the land, 
and you just wait there. And so he does, and the Lord, he has his promised son Isaac, and then, and then Jacob raises up, and then Jacob has the 12 patriarchs of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel. This is all a result of Abraham walking by faith, not by the law. Abraham doesn't even have the law here. And in fact, the Apostle Paul would say in Galatians 3, 6, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. The establishment of the nation of Israel was not perfect, but it was, it was a result of faith, not by the law. And I think that's his point. Next, we find the rescue of the nation through the man named Joseph. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction, and all our fathers could, not find, no, could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to, the, to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob to his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But at this time, at the time of the promise drew near, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. So the 12 tribes of Israel rise up, and you know the story there. There's, there's one particular son that has the favor of Jacob because he is by the woman that he loves. Remember the story of the deceiver, Jacob? The little snake that took his brother's inheritance, but his brother gave it to him too. But, but he took it and then he went to another land and he was deceived himself. And he took, he wanted this gal named Rachel for his wife and then he got Leah first because the father t deceived him, remember? And she bore a bunch of kids and all that. And then, and then Rachel ended up bear burying the child, Joseph, and another one named Benjamin. And, and Jacob loved them. So Jacob exalted his son. He had, he, obviously, they, he favored him, and his brothers hated him for that. Not only that, but then jo Joseph would have a dream. And he would tell his brothers, hey, you're going to all bow down to me one day. Uh, just a little bit of sibling advice here. Probably not a good thing to say to your siblings. I'm just saying. But uh, so one day his father sends him out to check on his brothers and stuff. And, and then they see him coming. And they're like, let's kill him. That's what you want your brothers thinking when they see you from afar off. Let's kill him. But then obviously one of his brothers says, no, we can't kill him. Let's throw him in this hole here and sell him off into slavery in Egypt. And you know the story. Joseph goes through all these trials and stuff and God is with him and he's faithful and he raises to the second uh, highest position in Egypt because he's able to interpret dreams. This is a, I mean, Stephen is giving a historical context 
that, it, that only a person that really knows the word could know. It tells you that he studied the word of God. And he's full of the Holy Spirit. So he's recounting all of this. And Joseph became a rescuer to the nation of Israel. Israel had been grown up. There were 70 there in Israel. And they, they moved over to... Um, he, it, his brothers heard that there was grain. You know, a famine had come. And God had, through the Holy Spirit, given Joseph a clear plan on how to, how to cause the nation of, of Egypt to survive through it. Not only them, but they could sell it to other lands. So... Those in Canaan hear about this, you know, Jacob and his sons, and they say, hey, you guys, he sends the, his brothers into Egypt before him, and he's rejected. He, he doesn't reveal who he is to them. He, he tells them, hey, I wonder if my brother Benjamin is alive. Why don't you guys go back and get him? And then when they come back the, the second time with him, then he reveals himself to them. And they received him. They rejected him the first time, but they received him the second time. But God had sent him in to be the rescuer of the nation of Israel. There, this, is a, this will be the thread throughout the, the rest of the defense that Stephen makes is the idea that they reject the first time and then they receive the second time, just like they will with Jesus Christ. They rejected Jesus the first time. He's their Messiah, Yet, when he comes again at the second coming of Christ, guess what's going to happen? They'll receive him. They'll receive him. Those Jews who are in the tribulation period, who survived that, who were anointed with the, 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 the anointing of the Lord, who were his witnesses in that time, they're going to receive him well. And they're going to ask him. Zechariah, record, Zechariah records this for us in Zechariah 13.6. What are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. And they'll recognize, oh man, They're, the scales had already fallen from their eyes, but they will receive him again. So the rejection of Joseph for the first time, the reception of him the second time. Next we see Stephen uh, speaking of the deliverance of the nation of Israel by way of Moses. Again, he was rejected the first time and received the second. Look at verse 20. And at this time Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. He was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And listen to this. He was mighty in his words and deeds. So make mental note of that. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that the brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So you know the story of the satanic agenda here through the Pharaoh to kill all the male uh, Hebrew ch children. And the reason he wanted to kill them all is to stop the population of this nation. He wanted to kill out the population of this nation. Doesn't that sound like what the devil does? Yeah. 
He's trying to kill out the people of God. Of course he is. It started in Egypt. Then it, and then it happens again, right? When Jesus shows up and the enemy is trying to kill, he takes all the, the children two years and older, the King Herod, the great, and he gives the order to kill all the little he, Hebrew children. Why? Because he, they are threatened by the nation of Israel. The Pharaoh is threatened by the nation of Israel. Herod was threatened by the nation of Israel. Really, to be honest, it was the devil that was threatened by the nation of Israel because he knew that God had given a promise in the Garden of Eden that there would be a seed of the woman that would come and he would crush Satan's head. And he was trying to stamp out that seed. He was trying to stop it. And so here... We find that. But the Lord preserves Moses. And you know the story. He jumps into the, they, he didn't jump in there, but his father, his mom laid him in that little basket or whatever and put him on the river. And Pharaoh's daughter found him, raised him up. And he knew the ways of, of Egypt. He understood the ways. He, was, he raised up in their thinking. And um, interesting enough, he was mighty in word and deed in the ways of the Egyptians. Just keep that in mind. At 40 years old, Moses, God puts it on his heart or whatever to go out and, and see his people, to go see the children of Israel. He goes out, he sees an Egyptian, you know, oppressing one of the Hebrew men. And, and so he gets in the middle of it and ends up killing the Egyptian. He goes back home that night. He goes back out the next day. Now he sees two Hebrew men fighting, two brothers in captivity that are slaves and they're, 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 they're fighting each other. And he steps in and he goes, whoa, whoa, guys, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Don't fight each other. And the, the one who has instigated the whole, whole deal looks at him and says, oh, what are you going to do, kill me like you killed the other guy? Like you killed the Egyptian? At that point, Moses knew that the news had spread everywhere and he knew his life was in danger. Isn't it interesting that these people, the people of God, were in captivity and they were fighting each other? Does that even make sense? Oh, it does, because we do that too. That's what we do in, our, in the church today. We're, there's, a whole th there's a whole opposition of the world against us, but we're too busy fighting each other. It doesn't make any sense. And Moses steps into that. And he said, what are you guys doing? Don't fight each other. Don't fight your brothers and your sisters, man. There's a bigger fight out there. And you know what? You guys want to fight uh, uh, re relating to theology or whatever it is? Hey, it's not bad to have conversations, but don't fight over these things. So sad to see, but regardless, Moses then disperses. He takes off out of Egypt. And so he's 40 years old, and he's left where he was raised up, and he flees to the land of Midian where he finds his wife and he has a, he has a couple kids there and stuff. So that, that's the storyline. Now, um, when he first came to them, though, he was rejected by them. He was rejected. He will be sent again by the Lord. Look at verse 30. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look... There came the voice of the Lord, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not, did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send you, uh, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom, you, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent out as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him and thus and thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered, it, offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as uh, he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. So you recall that the Israelites were crying out for God. As Moses departed, they were crying out, asking for a deliverer. God, will you deliver us? And this was a national really revival that was going on in the nation of Israel as they were being oppressed by the Egyptians. They turned their hearts to God and God heard them. And that is the way that God works. And that's primarily why we're probably not seeing really revival happening at this point. When God's people turn to him, repent of their sins, and truly seek after him, that's when revival happens, folks. That was happening in Egypt. When the nation of Israel had turned their hearts away from sin and turned their hearts back to the Lord, the Lord heard their cry, and then he appeared to Moses in the middle of the desert through a burning bush. And Moses was afraid, man. He didn't know what the heck to think. He's just minding his own business, you know, probably herding sheep. And then he sees this burning bush, and he hears the voice of God, probably a voice that he's heard before. And he knew in that moment, oh, man. And God put on his heart, I want you to go. I want you to be the deliverer of the nation of Israel. And so, you know, Moses, he, he, he stands up and he says, here am I, send Aaron, you know. It's interesting that he would say that. Oh, Lord, I can't do it. I, wait a second. Remember what we read here? That, that he was raised up in Egypt for 40 years, and he was mighty in word and deed. He was mighty in word and deed. Now he's fearful that he's not able to speak before Pharaoh. That just goes to show you that there's a difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. Right? You can learn a bunch of stuff in the world and you can feel confident in the world. But when it comes to speaking on behalf of God, it's different. You need an anointing from the Holy Spirit. You need empowerment from the Holy Spirit. You can't learn this stuff on your own. I remember as an unbeliever going to church... 
And you know what I heard in the, from the pulpit when I was sitting in your seat? Wonk, 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 wonk. I heard Charlie Brown's teacher. I'm not kidding you. This is a spiritually discerned book. You cannot discern this with worldly wisdom. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how studied you are in language and all of this kind of stuff. This is a spiritually discerned book. You need the Holy Spirit in order to understand this book. And the Holy Spirit will give you that understanding. That's why this book is foolishness to people in the world. Because they don't have the Holy Spirit. You and I have the Holy Spirit and we know this is life. And we know this is alive and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So Moses is being sent by God into Egypt and he delivers them. And he does signs and wonders like he's supposed to because he's a deliverer from God. He's a type of Christ. And he... And, and so when he comes the second time and performing these signs and wonders with having the showdown with Janies and Jamborees and such, and, you know, he's doing all these miracles and the ten plagues and all of that. After that, they receive him, and they make him their leader. And he gets them on the other side of the Red Sea, and immediately they start complaining. <laughs> they start murmuring, oh, man, we don't have any good food around here and all this kind of stuff. That's, isn't that the people of God sometimes? Man, be careful about complaining. Do you know? that all of those people who came out of Egypt, none of them went into the promised land? Why? Because they complained and murmured the whole time. And they brought a curse down. They brought captivity down upon the nation of Israel. He, he told them, because of you guys, you're going to go into captivity of Babylon. Why? Because that heart is going to continue on. There's going to be a disobedience in the heart of the nation of Israel. They're going to continue to reject me the first time. They rejected Moses. Moses, was, Moses received the, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and he comes down, and what does he find them doing? Worshiping an idol. And Aaron's like, I don't know what happened. I have no idea. They're like, dude, you made it. What are you talking about? He's like, yeah, I just threw the stuff in. It came out. I don't know. That's not what happened, Aaron. And, and, and Moses had a temper, dude, and he, he broke the Ten Commandments. And, he, and, and that ends up keeping him from going into the promised land too. His anger. Because he struck the rock twice when he wasn't supposed to. The disobedience of people. Hey, leads to the chastisement of God. It does. So don't be surprised when that happens. The Lord is just trying, he has our best interest in mind and he's trying to make us more like Jesus. Moses declares that God is going to raise up a prophet like him a rescuer, a deliverer that is going to come to the nation of Israel. Who was that going to be? Jesus. And they rejected him too. The saga continues as, as we look at the life of Joshua and the reestablishment of the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. Verse 45, our fathers in turn brought, in, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So Moses couldn't enter the promised land, so God raises up Joshua. There's always a man that God will raise up. He's never going to be, you know, never going to have a leader on earth. He's never going to not have somebody who's going to step in. There's always a remnant, of, and God will always use that remnant to accomplish his plan. The question is, do you want to be part of that or not? Because it's your choice. You can do what you want. But God raises up Joshua. One of the characteristics of Joshua, he never wanted to depart the house of meeting. He always wanted to be in the presence of God. That's why he's his man. 
God is looking for the um, loyal hearts to show himself strong, and Joshua is that man. Joshua rises up. He leads the children into the land of um, Israel. They are established. They, they, they grow there and all of that. And then what happens? The children of Israel become discontent with God being their king, and they ask for a king. Hey, give us a king. We want a king like everybody else has. And so the Lord says, hey, I'll give you the, peop- I'll, I'll give you the people's choice, Saul. Terrible king. And in fact, when he tries to step in and he take, makes a sacrifice outside of, you know, really the realm of the, how God told them to do it, the Lord stripped his kingdom from him right there. One chance. Because he's serious about these things. And he said, you can't be my leader if you're going to do these kind of things. He strips the kingdom and then he goes to the house of Jesse and he finds this little shepherd boy named David and David becomes his king. And then David you know, he, he, he kind of restores the land to some degree, but then he wants to build God a house. He's like, dude, I'm living in this mansion here in Jerusalem. I want to build a house for you, God. And the Lord, and here, here's what I want you to hear is God didn't tell him to build a house. He wanted to build one. God did tell Moses to build a tabernacle. God did not tell David to build a house. What's the difference? God wants to tabernacle with us, not temple with us. What's the difference? Tabernacling. Jesus is the picture of tabernacling. To come and dwell with us, yes, but then to dwell inside of us. That's the picture, the tabernacle. That's the point of it all. All of this is um, a picture of Jesus, right? The temple itself was man's way. God, we want to build you a house. And the Lord is like, I don't need a house. Dude, the earth is my footstool. Are you serious? You want to build me a house? So the Lord, the Lord allows David Uh, to do that, but David can't actually do the building because his hands are full of blood, so his son Solomon takes over. And Solomon builds the Lord an extraordinary house. And now you have the nation of Israel. Again, this is all really ultimately rejection of God. This is really a rejection of God. This is disobedience, operation uh, of the nation of Israel and disobedience to the Lord. And do you know that Solomon was the last king and then the nation of Israel was split into two kingdoms after this. After that, they would not be one, a one united people anymore. They would become the northern kingdoms, which is known as Israel in the Old Testament, and they would, they would become uh, Judah. Fractured. Why? Because man's doing what they want to do. This isn't about the Lord. This is the heart and the nation of Israel. As David and Solomon rise up, he's speaking this to the, nation, to, to the religious leaders and he's telling them the, the history of Israel here and, and they're not hearing it. And they're just like, yeah, yeah, we know this. We know this. Are you done yet? Is your defense over? Because we want to kill you. So look what he does here. He moves into a rebuke. Here, look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's saying the very things that you're accusing me of, you've done yourself. You hypocrites. You stiff neck. What is stiff neck? You know, you ever wake up like that? You're like, oh man. It's really the idea is you're just proud. 
You're so proud, you're unwilling to yield. You're just stiff and you're, you know, sticking your neck out like, like a peacock, I guess, or something like that. And, and you're, you're just so proud, you're not willing to hear. You're uncircumcised in your heart and ears. And Stephen, listen, back in the first century, I don't know if you know this, in ancient Israel, if you called a Jew a stiff-necked, uncircumcised and heart and ears person, you'd be killed. And he knew that. He knew, he, he knew that was going to happen. But listen, they are indicted by the history of the nation of Israel. They're indicted by the, the disobedience of the leaders of Israel. And now they are the same. They have the same heart. They're doing the same thing. They're not willing to receive those who God is sending to them. And here Stephen is. He has the face of an angel operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. They can't refute anything he's saying. And they're unwilling to yield. And they're not willing to bow their knee to him. They hear these words from Stephen. And they are now going to kill him. Look at verse 54, the murder of Stephen. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, are, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The mention of Stephen being full of the Holy Spirit here again should, again, tell us we need the, the Spirit of God to do the things that God is calling us to do. He's not doing this in his own power. He couldn't do this in his own power. And you can't do the things God's calling you to do in your own power. Stephen, saturated in the spirit of God, um, is willing to give away his life for the sake of the gospel. He's not, these guys are enraged by what he says. They're not even hearing him. They're not hearing the Lord. And I think this is the plea to the Lord. This is God giving them one more opportunity. Just like I think the seven-year tribulation period is God giving man one more opportunity. He's gracious and he's merciful, and he's trying to draw these people to himself, and yet they are unwilling to do it. And so Stephen, has, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit now, gets to see something nobody else gets to see. He sees heaven opened up. This is before he's stoned. Heaven's opened up. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looking up, gazing into heaven, sees Jesus standing there. Jesus is taking a stand for, for Stephen because Stephen is taking a stand for Jesus. When you take a stand for Jesus, Jesus takes a stand for you. And that becomes the precedence of all those who would be martyred, I think, in, in the church. I mean, we don't have accounts of everybody seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, but what I promise you is those who die for their faith, when they get to heaven, they will find Jesus standing, and they will find him saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. Ow. <laughs> Not ow. 
Stephen gets to experience something that I, no one else in the Bible really gets to experience. Why? Because he's doing what God's called him to do. He's been faithful with the things that God has given him to be faithful with. The, the empowerment that he's been given, he's, he's using. The gifting he's been given, he's using. And God just keeps giving him more. And he'll do that with you. Notice it says a lot of what Stephen says here is the same things that Jesus says at his death. Father, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what Jesus said on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That's what Jesus said on the cross. Stephen says, Lord Jesus, declaring Jesus to be God, by the way. Lord Jesus, I, I commit my spirit to you now. And then he also calls out that God would have mercy upon those who would stone him. Interesting enough, we have a sideline story here about a man named Saul. And it tells us here that, that those who uh, were, were to stone him, they laid their garments at his feet. This is, this is in accordance with the law of Deuteronomy and stoning. The witnesses who bared false witness, mind you, are the ones to throw the first stones. So they're to take their garments off and lay them at the feet of the executor who happens to be a man named Saul here. So these false witnesses put their garments down before Saul and Saul says, do it. Like this is just. Like we're just following the Bible, completely missing the point. This is what happens in religion. Just no heart connection whatsoever, just walking through checklist of items garments on the ground of the feet of the executor check executor gives the go ahead check stones thrown check person killed check not even connecting the dots but you know who was connecting the dots that day Saul Saul was connecting the dots and he would God would go would take him on a journey that would change his life it tells us here in 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 Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and, and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Listen, taking a stand for Jesus isn't a safe bet, but it's the right way to live your life. It's not the safe way. It's the right way. Listen, the Spirit of God, Jesus didn't promise us a long life on this earth. He did promise us eternal life with him if we'll trust in him. And when you turned your life over to Jesus, you were crucified with Christ. Now it's he who lives through you. You know, in order for you to be who God's calling you to be, you need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit in our lives, church. And if you're going to be effective for the Lord, not only do you need the Holy Spirit, but you need to be faithful with what he's given you, with the giftings he's given you. Be faithful with those things. And as you are faithful with those things, guess what? He's going to add more to you. Don't expect more until you're doing until you're fully executing all that he's given you already. Listen, our plea this morning is, God, will you fill us with your spirit that we would 
operate in a way that would glorify your name, that we would take a stand for you, Jesus. That we would be, we'd have the heart of Stephen here and that we would too have that same character in all of these things. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity this morning. And man, what a sobering content that we've read this morning, God. As we consider a man who has laid down his life to be a witness for you. And I think that's the same call that you have on all of our lives, Lord, that we would be people who are not being safe and trying to avoid, you know, confrontation and persecution all at all costs, but that we would be people that are willing to be all in and take it as it comes, no matter what it might be. So, Father, will you fill us with your spirit afresh this morning? And, and Lord, if we're missing it, if we are disobedient or if we're walking in partial obedience today, that you would cause us to return to you, repent to return to you, Lord, and then do what you tell us to do. And that we would be, um, you know, we don't have to live in the guilt and shame of all of that. We can turn it over to you right now. And our, we can be forgiven for those things. So we ask you, Lord, just in these last few moments, you would have your way in our hearts and that you would help us to consider as we now partake of communion, God, that you would um, just, Lord, remind us of what Jesus has done for us, that we can have life in that more abundantly through the cross. And if there's anyone here this morning that isn't in right, right relationship with you, God, that you draw them right now, that they can know that they can uh, receive the forgiveness of their sins and, and have an eternal destination that, that is life with you forever by simply turning their life over to you with a prayer like this. Lord Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner and I need you. And I'm turning from my sin this morning. And I want to receive you as my Lord. I believe that you died for me and you rose again from the dead for me. And I'm receiving you now. Fill me with your spirit and use me in this world. And help me to be completely and totally sold out for you now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.